All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Jokes, uh, part of the Perry Veritas uh, Network. This is episode five, which uh, Eric was just kind enough on our little Zoom session here to hold up five fingers, uh, pointing out that it was five, or that he would smack me if I got it wrong. One of those... uh, a little too busy trying to demonstrate this then, but uh, um, but yeah, this is episode five of Jokes, everybody. Really happy to have you with us here. Um, sitting here with Eric, uh, and we're prepared to talk about a joke that I have brought, but as as usual, we have to start with some banter, and so to get us kicked off, what's going on, man? How you doing? Uh, I was showing you my five fingers to show you my favorite form of discount. See, isn't that the <laughs> lamest reference you can think of, the five-finger <laughs> discount? And I'm like, hey, it was five. a five-finger discount. It's like 52-card pickup, <laughs> like that. <laughs> what the but, hell is a five-finger discount? It's, a, it's when you steal something. It's a five-finger well, discount. Steal, well, you you, rob, steal a, something. That's a thing? That's that, so when someone says this is a five-finger discount, that means that you've stolen something? Yeah, it means you lifted it from the, you know, the store. It's like, yeah, I got this can of beer. It was a five-finger discount. I might have grown up in a bubble because I, I, I could sort of heard that before, but I never knew actually what that meant. <laughs> that's that's kind of shocking. But you know what, 52-card, you've played 52-card pickup. Of course. Yeah, that's the worst game ever. I've both had it done to me once, just once. It's all take. Um, but I've also done it to plenty others. <laughs> yeah, which is what you do. It's how man hands on misery to man. Yeah, it's like the herpes of card tricks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that. Up, what, let's know. make let's let's put that up on the Instagram page. Let's see what is the herpes <laughs> of card tricks and why. And let's let's take a poll. Uh, we're at Pod of Jokes on Instagram. So that's, yeah. <laughs> that's where you find us. Oh, and by the way, we have email addresses too. So if you wanted to email us, uh, you find me at Josh at PerryVeritas.com. And if you can't fucking spell that, then you got to go back to school, man. That's back too to bad. Maybe I should make a uh, pot of jokes email address, and that would be Maybe you should. easier. Um, yeah. yeah, so Josh is at Perry Veritas, and uh, it's Eric at Perry Veritas. So what's been going on? I don't know. I'm sitting in my garage, even though my Zoom background makes it look like I'm in a nice apartment. It does. Um, every time I reach back, my arms disappear. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm an amputee. Uh, doing this pod uh, it's nice I always talk about the temperature inside the garage it's perfect today uh, really nice there's no sweat running around my butt anything like that it's all good that's good that's good yeah, that's good. yeah. although if I had a choice of talking to you with or without sweat running out around your butt I might choose with yeah do you think you know, it makes me a little more edgy a little more edgy a little more honest you know what I mean? You open up more easily. You got <laughs> on your butt, you know. You hold so still more. <laughs> uh, no, just another week's gone by. We're still in quarantine in California. Um, the South, I guess, is opening up. Um, I, I try not to follow the news. I'm trying to find happy things to follow, but that's very hard. And yep. I don't know. Um, Going out on my bike, I saw a roadrunner the other day. Have you ever seen a roadrunner? Yeah. Did they go, meet me, and run away? No, but it, it might as well have because it was <laughs> fast. It came, it came across onto the bike trail. Uh-huh. And instead of leaving the trail, it like led me out into 
a neighborhood. And, oh, oh yeah. thank you. Thank you, Roadrunner. Yeah. <laughs> it must, yeah, must have, it was very fast. I wasn't going to catch it. No, um, no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. So what's news with you, Mr. Burroughs? Oh man. Well, uh, so I started recording, um, a, giving a shot at recording maybe a solo episode of, uh, of sunshine and brain kind of start messing around with that idea. So I got 20 minutes in and um, I'm going to try to do some more recording maybe later today and tomorrow, see if I can fill out an episode there. Um, it's just hard to find guests, man. I've got a couple people that I'm talking to, one in particular that was just about to meet with me, but then his puppy got sick. And so we're kind of waiting until his puppy gets better and then we'll be able to be in a better space to talk. But uh, I also kind of like the idea of trying to record some solo episodes too. So I've been doing that a little bit. Um, and... Uh, yeah, what I talked about there, um, so far at least, is that it's just kind of interesting, the anxiety going in and the anxiety going out of, um, of quarantine. You know what I mean? Like all the kind of stresses that we felt heading into this, and then we've kind of just sort of been coasting in this crazy fucking Groundhog's Day scenario. Um, and now we're starting to kind of sniff the possibility of going out, but there's so much uncertainty on the other side of it. And then... Also, for me personally, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't made, like, the things that I struggle with easier. If anything, it's made them harder. But there has been something nice about kind of being in a world where, like, I don't have to make up any excuses for not fucking going anywhere. You know what I, you know what I mean? Like, um, and everything's opening up, and it's like, well, fuck, what if I still don't want to go anywhere? No, everything's open. And everyone else that was, like, able to go out before is able to go out now. And so it's sort of like, you know, you plan to sleepover, but your friends can't stay. And it's like, oh, come on, guys. <laughs> Where are you going, man? So I, it's, it's really interesting. I'm starting to kind of get into that anxious heading out of quarantine phase right now. Um, because there's a new normal out there of just being out in the wilderness and fucking terrified to see, like, what's going to happen next for the next basically year, year and a half until this is all kind of blown over. Um, so I can yeah. understand that. I, my, my thought, because I have gone into my office a couple of times and I mm. do go into traffic and it's great because there's really not that much for Southern California. It's just like, I mean, it might as well be just a normal, like small, might as well be Joplin or something. Cause there's just not that, that much. People, traffic. Are, people are getting out now though. People are getting out now. And a lot of construction, like road construction workers are just very busy. So like getting from like the road school to like Carlsbad, there's pretty much no direction you can go without hitting like, you know, some pretty significant road work going on. So there's been a ton of traffic now all of a sudden and, you know, they're opening up different things or opening up trails and businesses are starting to go back to work and, you know. Yeah, it's, it's worrisome. I don't, I don't really, I don't look forward to that sort of thing. I actually kind of enjoy the freedom. There's a liberty to you know being restricted if that makes any sense you, mm -hmm. you you your choices are somewhat limited you don't have to do every you, you you don't have to come up with excuses that's a good point josh like mm -hmm. you know you can just be like i'm sorry we're just you know we're just gonna stay here we're not yep you know most we're gonna do is run around the block yep yeah that's all we got that's all yeah. we got you know it, it it's uh it's kind of crazy we had a birthday party this morning one of those drive-bys um for a couple of uh, which is hilarious other. by the way that we call them drive-bys <laughs> I know, I know. 
<laughs> hey, I'm organizing a drive-by for my daughter's birthday. All right, man. I guess it seems kind of violent, but whatever that's you want to do. That's under definition for white people's definition <laughs> when applicable under quarantine conditions yes. may refer to some sort of celebratory automobile party in which balloons and uh, proper greetings and smiles are passed. Yeah. And, and really what those are, are um, little miniature experiments about how quickly social distancing walls and norms break down among children and then how just flippantly sort of fuck it minded adults are about oh, totally. <laughs> because That's every exactly drive by I've done within two and a half seconds, all of the rules that we set out are just flouted. The kids are all over each other. The adults are standing next to each other, you know, like yeah, I saw some kids holding their arms out to, to measure six feet. I'm like, dude, you are four feet tall. Like, <laughs> yeah, your arms are not like you put them together. You guys are still not six feet apart. Not um, even close. Not yeah, and so, yeah, it becomes this jumble, and then the parents are like, well, okay. You mm -hmm. know, they're getting something, we're getting something. So it just... <laughs> what are we going to do? You know, <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous. It's, it, ridiculous. It's, a, it, it's an interesting phenomenon. And also, it, it, you know, when you're in a party situation, I'm very good at this because I've practiced it for years. I was not always good at it, but, like, when you see people – you can, you know, glad hand them and really kind of like work into a conversation. It's just hard mm -hmm. when you're in the car, like going, eh. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Like, how you been? Yep. <sighs> Bye. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah. It's so what, what's the joke we got this week, Josh? Tell me. All right. So, are you going to play so it? I'm going to play it, is what I'm going to do. The comedian that I brought. Uh, for us today is a comedian named Jackie Cashian. Have you ever come across Jackie Cashian before? Yes, I have. I listened to, uh, I've heard some of her material. It's been mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. And she had a podcast, I believe, with another comedian for a while. Am I, miss, am I missing that? She was born in 65, uh, July 20th. That's cool. It's my mom's birthday. I know that. Hmm. Um, I, I know a lot of... If you listen to her stand-up, then you actually do know a lot about her because she does a lot of very personal stand-up. Um, so she does talk a lot about um, her family and her dad, and um, she's had a couple of stepmoms of them as well as her siblings and other people in her life. So if you just know her, her, her material, then you can get it. But she did host a podcast called Dork Forest Radio and then later called The Dork Forest. And that was right. uh, starting in 2006. So she used on. to, she also had a pod with, yeah, that's what I remembered with Lori Kilmartin. Uh huh. Um, another. Yeah, the Jackie and Lori show. Right. That was uh, part of the Nerdist group. Right. Yeah, I never, I never got into her, um, her uh, podcasting, but I actually found her through two uh, gateways. One, I'm a huge Maria Bamford fan. Uh, I fucking love Maria Bamford. As you should be. She's incredible. And when I, like, when I list like, my top comedians, you know, I talk about Bill Burr. Um, Maria Bamford is way up there for me. And one of these days, I'm going to bring a Bamford joke, but she's really hard. It's really hard to pick which joke to do with her because um, there's just, so, there's just so, so much great stuff to look at. I've got one in particular. Excellent. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I've got one in particular that I think I might bring, but I'm not really sure yet. I'm not really sure yet, but I love her. She's one of my top favorites and I've seen her live. And Jackie Cashian opens up for her quite a bit. Um, so I went and saw her and, and Jackie opened up for her. Um, so that was kind of like the second time that I'd come across her. And then she also was on an episode of You Made It Weird with Pete Holmes. Um, mm -hmm. And so I've heard her in a nice long form, very personal interview with Pete Holmes. And she's just great. Um, and I wanted to bring her for two reasons. One, um, I think she has a really unique stage presence that speaks to, you know, just kind of something that you and I and also uh, Robbie last episode talked about in terms of comedy, like the way a comedian presents themselves on stage. I think she's a really interesting example of how a comedian might present themselves on stage. I wanted to bring her for that. And then two, um, the joke I want to share, or rather the routine I want to share is the best political thing I've heard since Trump was elected. Um, and I haven't like, mind you, gone out and like sought political humor. Generally speaking, I don't love political humor. Um, but uh, what she talks about and what she does after the election, and we'll get into this when we get into the joke, I think is really wonderful and gives us a chance to talk about another side of humor, which is when it gets political and how we kind of use humor to help us to think about politics and to think about issues and things like that. So that's kind of why I brought this joke. Um, what do you know about her? Very little, probably all that you've told me. I can remember her only vaguely, and I haven't followed her career since the uh, Jackie and Laurie show, and that's been a mm -hmm. lot of years. Yeah. So this is all going to be fresh for me, and um, I'm looking forward to hearing it. How long is it? Um, so it's a few minutes uh, because it's a couple of it's a couple of segments off of her latest album. Um, and so we'll kind of like skip over a couple of things here and then, uh, and then you'll, you'll see, you'll hear kind of the full joke in terms of how she sort of represents this. So, uh, do you want to just dive into it? Yeah, let's dive into it, man. Let's do All it. All right, cool. So, uh, so she, um, had booked a recording for her 2017 album. She had booked a recording to do an album and she had booked it to be six weeks after the election. And nobody back then, except for like me and a couple other people who I knew thought was thought Trump was actually going to win. <laughs> I fucking knew that guy was going to win, man. <laughs> what made it. you think that? Because all the polling showed that he had, I remember the day before the election and everyone talks about this still. Yeah. Sort of this consensus that he had like a 5% chance of winning. What, what gave you the sense that he was going to pull it out? Because I knew young people weren't going to vote for Clinton. I knew I knew that the um, the multi generational coalition that Obama had formed um, wasn't behind Clinton in the same way, and that we had felt a lot of folks had felt like uh, Hillary Clinton was sort of foisted upon us, and the people who voted for her were not voting with any kind of emotional fervor <laughs> whatsoever, right. and a lot of young people who would have voted for Bernie. Uh, didn't want to vote for her because they felt like, uh, you know, their candidate had been taken away from them. Um, right, because there was that recording from uh, the DNC, right, mm -hmm. where the the chair of the Democratic National Committee basically, it was portrayed that they had basically said, you know, this is our chosen and endowed candidate, mm -hmm. and we're going to do everything we can to shut out Bernie from this, yep. even if he may be the most popular in yep. certain segments, there's going to be no yep. compromise. Yep. 
no compromise. And the people didn't want, you know, the young people didn't want that. And the thing is, is that, um, you know, people tend to vote, both sides tend to vote their passion, right? That's kind of how it goes. Um, but young people especially vote passion. Older people can vote duty. Young people vote passion. Um, and I think a lot of young people then, and unfortunately now as well, have kind of looked at the system and said, this is a system that probably doesn't work as well as it's supposed to for sure. And definitely has been hijacked by a very populous generation that doesn't fucking know what's going on in the world anymore. <laughs> so why are my two choices for president, two white men in their mid seventies who are both rapists? Why is that my choice? And I think there in this election too, there's a young people, there's a lot of young people who just aren't going to vote. So what we would hope is that a lot of people who would vote for Trump are now going to vote for Biden um, because they see him like, you know, Pennsylvania, <clears throat> the, you know, the coal mines, you know, and often those places that many of them voted Obama um, both times and then fucking voted for Trump when Trump was running, that they'll then switch their votes to Biden because they think that he'll be a better representative of their issues. That's our hope because the young people aren't going to vote for Biden in the same way that they didn't vote for Hillary. Um, but, uh, yeah, so here we are getting political already. Do you have anything to add to what I've just said? <laughs> no, it, I think that puts great context into where this joke is coming from. And I have no idea what this joke is, but so, you laid the foundation. I've laid some foundation here politically, and she's going to talk about this in such a way that I just absolutely love it because it's so honest and so perfect. So just a little bit of quick background information about Jackie Cashian. She's a middle-aged white woman, um, you know, who grew up in America. She's half Irish, half Armenian, and, um, and uh, you know, grew up basically lower middle class, middle class, and her whole life has been a very, you know, stereotypical middle class white lady living in America. So not, the, not, all, the, not all the best things, but uh, certainly has got plenty of uh, opportunity in front of her. Um, and this is what she came on stage talking about just, you know, as you'll hear from her very shortly after the election. There's a couple of pieces in here that I really like as well. So we'll bring it out. But here's uh, here's how it starts. Minneapolis. Nice work. Coming out in the weather, in the holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. If you are an atheist, I hope you got your laundry done. <laughs> I love that joke. I tell it every year. Every year. Every year with that joke. Never gets old. I'm like somebody's dad with that fucking joke. Um, I have my notes up here uh, because uh, I'm taping a new album, you guys. Very glamorous. I always tape here at Acme because Acme is the best. And uh, it's a wonderful place. Uh, you've uh, chosen wisely if you've never been. This is the greatest. If you don't like me, come back next week. Turns out there's another coming. But uh, I will say this is... Uh, I had uh, the best setup. I had like uh, the greatest lineup of jokes, uh, 45 minutes of gold, and then uh, the world went to shit six weeks ago. So then I had to write some new material. So uh, mine is paralyzed. Here's <laughs> so that's it. That's the setup right there. Um, six weeks after Trump was elected, the whole liberal world just like in shock, utter amazement and shock. How did we not see this? What the fuck is going on? How are we going to survive four years? Can somebody please assassinate him? Like, what, what are we going to do? And, uh, and she's getting up to do uh, a show. 
uh, getting up to record an album. And instead of just stopping it, she then dives into um, political humor. And as she'll say in a minute, she doesn't actually do political humor, but this is how she starts it. And now the whole world is basically ended and my mind, my mind is numb, paralyzed. <laughs> I kind of know what to do. So what's your initial reaction to what you hear from her? It sounds like, no, I, I, like, I like her delivery. Uh, she's very self-effacing. Uh, the setup is essentially, I came here to record an album with stuff I've practiced, but here's some new stuff because what I previously did has no relevance. Yeah, you're gonna and that's coming. that's ballsy, and you know it's interesting when you say the the whole liberal community. It, it brings up the question of are comedians by default liberal? And I oh. think we can we can approach that later because yeah. I don't think it's I don't think it's uniform. No, I, I, you know I, I think it's all across the board. It's like um, John Dos Passos of the, the author of Manhattan Transfer. You know, he was of that era with Hemingway and mm -hmm. and uh, Gertrude Stein and, and those folks, but he tended to be less uh, less left than say those folks were, and he was yeah. deemed an alien. I think you see that in the community um, with guys like uh, Dennis Miller. Dan, I was going to say easy Dennis example, quintessential example. Yeah, yeah. and uh, even um, Nick DiPaolo. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's definitely not going to, and, and then there's some other ones that we had talked about offline, but we can get back to that later. Um, so I like it so far. The setup is interesting. I, I mean, this, how much of a setup is it? I can't tell. It's basically like, but I mean, what is she about to do? That's the thing about her that I really love so much. It's the first thing I think I wanted to really cover about her. So um, I can't take credit for this. This is from uh, the episode of You Made It Weird when they were talking to her, when Pete Holmes was talking to her. But he, he made the point where I think he said that his girlfriend said that Jackie Cashian arrives on stage like she's late for dinner. And, <laughs> um, and she's getting to the restaurant. And you've all been there for 45 minutes. You've all ordered. Your food is arriving. And she's just late. Um, and there's probably some crazy reason why she's late. Um, there isn't a chair for her. So now we're waiting for the wait staff to arrive with the chair and she's entertaining the table. Um, is it, it's kind of like the presence that she has there that, um, it's this very kind of like out of breath, halfway manic, and she's using her humor to explain why she's late, but also to connect with you in a way that's really kind of funny. And she doesn't know well enough to sit down and just join the conversation. So she just keeps right on talking in order to feel connected with people. And that's, that's how her, I, I think that's a really brilliant way to kind of talk about her stage presence as opposed to other people who like practically, you know, you look at like old Mitch Hedberg, you know, recordings and he's laying on the floor. <laughs> All right. Just you delivering I mean? his material. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or think about the emo Phillips joke that we shared in the first episode. And that dude is putting together and taking apart a trombone the whole time. True. Where so, theatrical it's practiced it's rehearsed but it causes a feeling of anxiety in the person that's watching them because while you listen to these jokes you also don't know is he ever going to play the trombone good point whereas with her it's like you kind of take that emo phillips anxiety but she's using her anxious presence to sort of calm you it's like it's okay i'm the anxious one here let me talk for a while and i'll just carry you know there's something really kind of fun about about her presence in that way um but uh anyway 
Do you see what I mean there? Though? It's like kind of. Oh yeah. Yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah. So where does she go next? What's the next part? All right, let's hear it. So she's going to, she's going to expand on the, um, on the, uh, um, kind of on the premise here a little bit and then, uh, then she'll dive in. Cause I don't do political material, but I do now, I guess, cause I'm human. <laughs> I'm alive in America. And I like things like the Declaration and the Constitution, which seem like there's a goddamn mess in front of us. Anyway, did you guys, did anybody else call that we were going to be the bad guys in World War III? Did you know that? I did not know that. I did not call that. You know, I've tried that line a couple of times in about six months ago, July 2016. I tried that line up in uh, Canada to dead silence. We all laughed. Dead silence up in Canada. Chirp, chirp, chirp. Guy in the fourth row goes, we knew. And I was like, what? He said, how long have you known? He goes, decades. We've known for decades. We've seen it coming. Oh, God. I don't know. It's because uh, I'm from Wisconsin, which is on fire right now. And uh, I love it. I love it. It's like the Shire for me. But uh, here's the thing about it. Uh, when I was a kid in Wisconsin, I'm from a little factory town outside of Milwaukee, a little factory town called South Milwaukee. It's a long story. It's not my fault. Let's not get into it. It's a factory town. It's its own town. Now, when I was a child, there were six Catholic churches, six very beautiful Catholic churches. Now there are two Catholic churches, and there are four buildings that have been deconsecrated. And about six months ago, one of those buildings got turned into a mosque. Ooh. And a school. Ooh. And so I called my dad. And my father's 79 years old, and by no stretch of the imagination is my father a liberal. By no stretch of the imagination. Or, by the way, a conservative. Uh, my father very much a pragmatist. Uh, what my father said during the election was, she's not hot, but uh, she's overqualified. So, uh, <laughs> making friends, making friends, my dad, every time he opens his face. And uh, so I call him up and I was like, how's everybody in South Milwaukee handling the new mosque, dad? How are they taking it? And he goes, most people are fine. Most people get it. Some people are idiots, of course. But some, most people, I know that it just means 30 years from now, a place is going to be crawling with lapsed Muslims. Who gives a shit? <laughs> He's, of course, correct. Uh, and I have talked to people from high school and I've tried to explain to them on Facebook because that's where people want to be explained to. <laughs> no, no, they don't. Uh, that we are talking about Wisconsin Muslims. Minnesotans, you get it. It's a Wisconsin Muslim. First of all, there are nine. Second of all, you're going to go to a picnic and there's going to be a weird jello salad. That's going to be the whole story. That's it. You're going to have to say to some woman in a hat, hey, uh, is there mint in this? Yes, yes, there is. And you're going to share a bass boat with a guy named Salim instead of Doug. It's America. Get used to it. We're all immigrants. I don't care if you're Native Americans. 11,000 years ago, you came over the Siberian Strait, and uh, nobody came on purpose. Nobody came because things were going well. I don't know what your ancestors were like, but none of mine were sitting on a pile of Scrooge McDuck money uh, in some whitey Magoo country thinking to themselves, you know what? You know what I want to do? Start over. Uh, okay, pause here for one second. There's more. 
But, uh, but this first approach that she takes, first of all, is brilliant. The, uh, you, you see a lot there in terms of, you know, um, just what she does, generally speaking, which that she talks a lot about her dad. Um, she's going to feed a lot of issues and thoughts through her dad or through different people who are a significant part of her life. Um, so she'll talk about her friendships with male comedians or with other comedians or um, her relationships with her sisters or her brother um, or her, in, you know, her various in-laws, etc. So she'll, she'll do a lot of that in her humor. Um, but the first place she goes here is, aside from just the shock and mind-numbing, what the fuck are we going to do now, um, part of just what it felt like after Trump was elected, um, she goes straight to, you know, Muslims, right? Straight to like, well, people are different in our community. And this is like kind of what we see. And is it really a big deal? And unpacking it in such a perfect kind of down-home Wisconsin-y sort of way, which is like, no, we know exactly what this means. It means the same thing that it's always meant. It just means that, you know, 30 years from now, there are going to be a bunch of lapsed Muslims living in Wisconsin. <laughs> right. And she prefaces it with the, uh, with the um, loss or conversion of the Catholic churches, right? Yeah. And, and saying, oh, you know, it, that's, that's the evolution of things. Don't get overexcited. Yeah. There isn't some sort of, you know, revolution that Sharia law is coming along. It's nope. relax. This is how Just it relax. is. This is all going to happen. You're yeah. going to share a basketball with a guy named Celine instead of Doug. <laughs> right. right. You're going to ask if there's mint in the what, jello salad. It's going to be a weird jello. Yeah. It's going to be a weird jello salad. Uh, totally true. And I think that that speaks to the fact that everyone has realizes that their neighbors are their neighbors in this country and has right. had that experience. And it's right. like, Oh, they're, they're different. They're new. And then you go over and you're like, Oh yeah, you all, your, your food is a little different. Your accent's a little different, but at the end of the day, we're just hanging out at this park and our kids are like kicking a ball around or throwing it around. And also at the end of the day, you have some form of what were those weird salads called that, from yeah. the, you know, the, um, Ambrosia, right? Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You, you too have Muslim ambrosia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like laying that, and very Midwestern. Wisconsin is a perfect place to set it because it's just, I mean, that's where Happy Days and Liberty mm -hmm. Shirley were set, right? Mm -hmm. yep. Why? I guess we just perceive that as like good old, you know, salt of the earth America. Well, and those, those cities there in the Midwest used to be so much more important to the lifeblood of what makes America run in comparison to what they are now. You know, I mean, just think about the history of Detroit. Um, that place wasn't a city for money. Might not even still be a city now. I mean, it's got all the buildings of a city, but so many people moved out of there that um, it's like, can we even qualify this as a city now? Um, right. And, uh, you know, those towns, Pittsburgh, Detroit, you know, all, all those strong Midwestern towns had, had a lot of importance um, for, uh, for the country and so represented a certain thing. It's just not like that anymore, you know. Um, we think about, like, the history of uh, um, Dearborn, Michigan. You know that right. town, Dearborn? Oh, yeah, that's where my wife was born. You're, she's from Dearborn? She was born in Dearborn, Michigan, yes. Do you know the history of Dearborn? I, I know its current history and its past history. I believe that my dad worked up there when he was with Ford. 
I believe that the plants w- was up there. You tell me. You seem to well, know more. Dearborn is one of the uh, three top three or four capitals in America for racist and anti-Semitic thought and uh, development. It's totally, I did not know that. Yeah, the history of anti-Semitism and racism in America, um, a lot of that actually comes from Dearborn. And a lot of that is because, you know, Henry Ford was a, really quite a famous anti-Semite. And he used to publish a, uh, a publication called um, uh, The International Jew. Um, and it was like a part of a public, if you just went to a Ford place, it would just sort of be there. And, um, all these articles that were presented about the international Jewish cabal and how Jews control the banks and all this stuff. And, uh, kind of made its way to America via Canada, via the gateway of, uh, Dearborn, Michigan. And when you, um, back in the day, if you lived in Dearborn, you had to be white and you had to be. Christian, a hundred percent, and you would see signs like on the sides of taxis that would say, um, you know, keep Dearborn clean, and what that meant was keep anyone who isn't white or Christian the fuck out of Dearborn. And now Dearborn houses the world's largest, um, America's largest Muslim and Arab population. Um, <clears throat> like it, hands and, down. Yeah, and when when in terms of geographical origin, isn't it like the highest population of Iraqi nationals? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, um, what Dearborn sort of became after that is fascinating in its relationship to Ford and um, all that stuff. It's a really, really interesting, really interesting kind of place. So yeah, that, that Midwestern mindset is kind of fascinating because it does run the extremes of, you know, what, what Dearborn represents versus like, for example, my family, um, hillbillies in the Ozarks who are like famously anti-establishment, you know, often quite liberal, um, certainly libertarian. If you're libertarian, you might fall on the Republican side or the Democrat side, depending on the kind of libertarian you are. Um, and, uh, and, you know, intellectual in their approach to things, but totally pig farmers and all that stuff with their own kind of version of down home sensibility. So, setting it in the Midwest like that is a really fun kind of way to do it. And then using that logic of, I mean, what does this really mean? It just means that it's just going to be a bunch of lapsed Muslims and it's not a big deal for anybody. It's so That's a great Midwest line because that concept, I don't think that concept has ever been integrated into, um, into our culture. The idea of you have plenty of people say I'm a lapsed Catholic, which yeah. all, all that means is like, eh, you're not going to go to church until you're afraid you're going to die. Yep. You yeah. know, or I'm yeah. lapsed ex, but a lapsed Muslim. That's pretty funny in terms of concept because it just means you know n- normalizing with the American consumer culture, the capitalist system, mm-hmm. all the things that um, ultimately you know Xboxes and BMWs. That's yeah. the things that ultimately make uh, people feel as though they're part of a community. You know, doesn't take long. That is, yeah, doesn't take long. No, it doesn't. Um. Yeah, I wonder if lapse is a form of privilege in that way. You know, there's some, there is something kind of interesting about just the privilege of being able to lapse, you know. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's very keen. When you say privilege, you mean, you know, you, you reach a sort of comfort and in community and yeah. you don't have to worry about falling back on traditions of heritage and ancestry. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, for sure. I, I don't know. I think it's kind of a, it's an interesting concept. So 
I think about that a lot, actually, like in terms of like my spiritual path, like going from being religious to not religious like I am now. Um, I, there's no question that there's, that there's a story of privilege in that, you know, that I have like the space and the comfort to come to the conclusions that I've come to, which isn't to say that you can't see, like if you're struggling, you can still see through the bullshit of religion for sure. Plenty of people do that. Um, but anyway, so, so, uh, kind of one of those, kind of one of those things, but yeah. And I think that, I mean, certainly religion is at all levels of society and I think it provides Mm -hmm. comfort. It provides a thread of memory for people because Uh a lot of times that's really the language that families have with one Mm -hmm. another, the ability to communicate when frankly, there's no nothing else you might have in common with your father or your mother Mm -hmm. or, Mm -hmm. and you can all share a common language, a common, a common ideology. You might disagree about whether the Packers are any good or, you know, whether the, the bears are any good, Uh but at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're still like, well, you know, you still end up at the same church functions. You still end up at the same places. And maybe, maybe that is the, maybe that is that, that sort of uh, comfort that you can overreach the lapse, the notion of lapse, meaning that you're now just part of one big mixed society and you don't really care about those particular aspects of heritage. Right, right. Or it's just, you know, life can be pretty bad in America for people, for sure. There are lots of people for whom life in America is rough, boy, really, really rough. Um, But even so, it's probably better than whatever that version is in another place. You know, especially in a lot of places where where we come from in order to get here. You know, nobody's leaving a great life and moving to a whole different country to start over again. Um, You know, that's just not... Scrooge McDuck money. Yeah, there's no reason to leave if you if you're sitting on a pile of Scrooge McDuck money. You're just you're just making you know you're just staying there, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, so um, I don't know. Makes for like a really interesting thing. But so she she then takes it somewhere really interesting. This is why I like it so much, is because she's going to talk about you know how she's responding to this as a middle class middle aged white lady, like what her what her mindset is coming out of it. Now, the first thing she'll do if you listen to the album is she'll talk about her dad. Um, and so she, she talks about her dad and the types of advice he gives and how sometimes, you know, what your dad gives you is, you know, really wonderful advice. Other times he's just handing you a monkey's claw and you're just like, this is just, this is going to curse me for the rest of my life. I don't know. And then she gives these really fun kind of like examples of it, but then she gets uh, political again. So uh, you ready? Right. All right. So when the election happened, I, of course, terrified, like many people, scared, thinking about, you know, registration acts and deporting millions of people and everybody's brown or has a limp or some fucking thing. And uh, trainfuls of people always gathering people by religion and color. It's always worked out well for uh, the world. And so I was terrified. And you know where I got my hope? I got my hope from my black friends, from my brown friends. I got all litany kind of friends, right? I got all the friends that are in line ahead of me. Uh, but I got, uh, <laughs> right? You got your lesbians with kids, and you got your handicapped, and you got your people who have kids that are disabled, and your Asian Muslims, and whoever the fuck. Anyway, so I got lots of those friends, but I got my hope from my black and my brown friends who I was talking to, because uh, that's what they needed was to reassure me. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, hey, uh, 
I'm scared. I'm scared. And to a person, they said, yeah, yeah, it's scary. It's really scary right now. But, you know, it just we just got screwed again. We just got screwed again. You just get up and you keep going. That's what you do. You get in the way of crummy behavior if you see it. And uh, you just keep going. You just keep going. And make sure you're happy. Nobody wants you to be happy. So make sure every day you try to be happy. And I was like, just get up. And one of my friends said, Jesus, is this the first time you've been disappointed? <laughs> Defensive. I was like, no, no, Jesse Ventura. He was a scary, I'm going to make a boatload of money guy off the government. No, maybe not the same as Nazis and Klansmen. So, uh, so yes, yes, but here's the real reason I'm mad is because now I have to get up. I have to get up and get in the way of bad behavior because 2% of the people on this planet are bad. Everybody else, I genuinely believe this. I believe that everybody's great, but 2% are broken and 2% are out of their damn minds. And they're going to grab genitals and say horrible things and be mean to people. And now I, who want to be Captain America, uh, have to stand in front of them and be a big white lady meat shield. And uh, I don't want to be a white lady meat shield. I was hoping just to coast to the twilight of my life and fall over in a heap. That was it. That was going to be it. And now I have to get up. I don't want to. I don't want to. I want to get a remote. Pay someone. Get Amazon to fucking do it. I don't know what I want. I'm a Prime member. Does no one care? And now... And I got friends, like I have gay friends and relatives who are like, their kids came home from school and they were scared. Are they going to take us away from you, mommies? And I'm like, first sign of that, fucking run, run, I said to him. No reason to be brave, get the fuck out. Uh, I was not raised to be the hero of anything, uh, but I guess I will be. I was like, I'm not, I don't have any kids. I can be a white lady meat shield. You can throw me in front of it. Uh, I would like a small statue, something tasteful. <laughs> Possibly slimming. That would be nice. <laughs> and you have to complain laterally, you guys. I'm sorry to obsess, but I seriously, I, a uh, middle-aged white lady over here, can mostly just complain to white guys. That's it. Uh, those are the only guys who are behind me in line. Uh, everyone in front of me in line, uh, they get to complain to me and I have to be supportive. That's the rule. That is the rule. And uh, I didn't make the rule. Uh, that's the fucking rule. If you are a white guy, you have to get in the way of bad behavior and you have to clean out your attic so you can hide people. Uh, that's that's your job. That's your fucking job. I, I just didn't make that rule. That is traditionally the rule of decent white men throughout the centuries. All right. Quick little stopping point there. So, so you see what she's doing, right? I mean, it's brilliant. She's immediately um, just putting herself in this place and talking about what it means to her. You know, so as you hear her talking about that, you know, first of all, we've been in the Trump presidency for a few years now, so we're sort of used to it. But I hear this and it kind of brings me back to how it felt after that dude was elected. Um, but what's your kind of reaction as you're hearing her, you know, just do her bit uh, getting into her show? She is. Um, I like how she has set up this sort of uh, unspoken tier of. Uh, hierarchy or the right to complain like who's got the right to complain like do I, am I supposed to be I'm not going to be affected by this directly by virtue of superficial aspects of my life yet I still uh -huh. need reassurance from those that are probably most affected by it 
um, in order to feel good and they're willing to reassure me. And that raises the question of what kind of people are we really like? What, <laughs> what is this that, that we have, we have come to where can't we just, I'm, I'm waiting to see where she's going to go with it. She's very self-deprecating, but it's also sort of like a call for, uh, you know, general sympathy and empathy. Um, I don't want to read too deep into it. It's pretty funny that she uses the term white lady meat shield. Yes, <laughs> that is exactly why I needed to bring this joke up. Just that term. My job is to be a white lady meat shield. Yep. I mean, to stand in the way of these forces that otherwise would destroy all of the things that I think make this country great. Right, my brown friends, my <laughs> lesbian moms, my whatever she was talking about—all of the mixes and diversities that you know we have seen engender greater success and greater progress mm -hmm. than uh, simple homo homogeneity. And so that's yeah. and she's the white lady meat shield because she's taking her sort of endowment, her privilege and throwing it in front of these other privileges that otherwise would, uh, you know, take those things away. And talking about what that means today, which is, which is rarely something we ever think about when we think about the great white lady shields of the past, you know, I mean, like all the great, all the great Germans who hid uh, Jewish people in their attics and in their basements and all the great Dutch who did that and like what they were giving up, what privilege and, ease they were giving up in order to fulfill that kind of role you know and back then it might have meant you know well you can't like you have to share your food and and uh you have to be extra careful and you can't say things at work and maybe you can't afford to go out and you know do the things you wanted to do but nowadays it means that you can't like just sit around watching amazon prime all day <laughs> and you can't like you know just coast to your death like uh, like you might have wanted if you're living in privilege. You have to like actually stand up. And it's just funny hearing her really parse out like the emotion of that so recently from the election and how brilliant that she understood how funny that is. And then to kind of bring it forward in that way is, I mean, I, I haven't heard anything better yet about uh, politics since Trump was elected. And for her, it's a real fear. Like it, it's it's mm -hmm. legitimately based in a, real fear and it's not it doesn't have the sense of being hyperbolic it's simply and it, it's a bit confessional maybe she thinks it's hyperbolic none of that stuff is really panned out but by the time she was doing this if i recall correctly within the first few months there were executive orders and there were uh, federal court actions that were taken all the way to decision that continue to be battled <laughs> over now as to what they call Muslim bans. You had Steve Bannon's agenda in there. You still have Stephen Miller, who's still in the White House. He was affecting oh, yep. all of this like uh, self-hating um, anti-Semitism. Like it, it is, yeah. That that's very real. Um, and she feels it very uh, realistically. And you know, it makes me think, and we'll get we'll get to this topic too because I think it's very interesting to revisit the idea of what's the other side thinking about when it comes to these sorts of com these comic aspects, and can they be funny from the other side? Um, yeah, 
you you wonder like well just because someone feels it's real to them why does that make it funny and why isn't it funny when the other side is is uh portraying it in a similar light um then mm -hmm. we get into the real question of what's what's a funny joke and what's comic i like what she's doing um let's keep going this is good man she's building it well let's do it all right so now she's gonna transition through it and out of it um and she's gonna do it by this is like a really good example of a joke that doesn't have a pure end because the ending of it transitions to her next jokes um so she really is like you know bringing home that like hey i'm late to dinner but i'm here to entertain kind of like mindsets and approach and you see what i mean by the way in terms of just her whole presence it's kind of out of breath kind of not it's settled but it's trying to make you settled but not quite settled you know it's this real interesting kind of middle ground there in terms of how she presents herself but so what she's going to do is she's going to turn it and she's going to talk about her armenian heritage and talk about conversations with her grandmother and she's going to transition that through to a con to jokes about relationships which is where she spends a lot of the rest of this special so you ready let's get it. let's do it all right <laughs> care about like the registering of, of religious people because I am uh, a Christian don't applaud nobody ever does uh, <laughs> it's fine because everyone who says they're a Christian usually said I never tell anyone because the next words out of somebody's mouth is always something horrifying so uh, I never do tell anyone I just try to be because uh, I was raised in a very nice church where it was essentially be like the nice man in the picture and go get your dad some coffee that was the whole plan that was the whole religion in a nutshell. <laughs> it was please pick up the dishes and mm, try to be nice. So um, I'm Armenian, which uh, here's the thing. It's it's a uh, in Wisconsin I have to explain that it's not a Baltic swordfish. It's a country in the middle of nowhere. And uh, and the Armenian Christians were killed in a genocide in 1915. The Turks deny it. Uh, they've taught their children and their grandchildren it never happened. Here's what I have to say if you're holding a genocide, by the way. Uh, don't take pictures uh you're not you're not smart that's not smart too many too many photos we see what you're doing okay so uh but here's what my grandmother lived through it they were marched through syria everybody died she didn't die uh so uh my grandmother talked about the genocide three times when i was a kid and i because i asked her about it two times funny stories hilarious genocide stories a lot of people don't know people who live through a genocide they're funny uh so my grandmother told me she said that when uh, when the Turks came to take them out of their tiny village, first of all, there was bread in the oven. She was 60 years later, still worried about it. I think it burned. I think it burned. Uh, but the Turkish general in charge of their village let her family bring their family donkey so that my grandmother's grandmother could ride it and uh my grandmother's grandmother was going to ride this donkey but the village priest of the armenian church stole the donkey so that he could ride the donkey and my grandmother at 16 picked up a two by four and beat the priest off of the donkey <laughs> yeah yeah and she told me that story when i told her that i didn't want to go to church anymore <laughs> She said, I go to church, you'll go to church. And so. I was 13 and I was doing teeny 
genealogy, right? I made her cry. So uh, I made her, because I was doing genealogy, I, uh, I asked where all of her siblings were. And she was like, well, they all died. And then I pressed her. I was like, how did they die? And she's like, stop talking to me. And uh, <laughs> she cried and I made her cry and I felt very sad. And then I, since I was 13, I was just like, well, what was it like? What was it like, the genocide? And she said, well, for every 200 Armenians, there was one Turkish soldier who was in charge of that part of the line. And, uh, and then she just stared at me, essentially daring me to ask. And I did. And I said, why didn't you guys just tackle them? There were so many more of you could have killed them and just tackled them. And she said, none of us wanted to be the first to die. So we all died. And the reason she told me that, because she wants me to be the first to die. <laughs> I'm just going to fucking tackle with you guys. <laughs> Nobody gets on the trains. <laughs> Nobody. No. Anyway. So that's how she ends the joke. That's there's, great. There's, it's great. There's a third genocide story that I want to share with you either now or after we talk for a little bit because you'll see how she weaves it then you know how she goes from genocide and politics into relationships is pretty good so maybe I should just share it with you now right quick and then we'll talk about the overall joke sure sure we can we can always uh edit revise or whatever let's see exactly exactly so this is this is how she now comes out of this just to give you the full scope of how she kind of gets in and out of this topic so i saved the second funny story for last because why not order order of uh, i don't know how to do comedy i do uh so <laughs> the rule of three the rule of three finish the fucking story here it is uh so she said as they were walked by these villages in syria that villagers would come out because they didn't have television and they would ask uh <laughs> That's the joke. That's how it ends. And that's how she transitions from Trump to relationships. She goes from that to, uh, you know, her friends in college thought she might be gay at one point and she had to try it out. And, you know, then she just goes on about her relationships and stuff. It's a brilliant, the overall special is brilliant and I definitely recommend listening to it. But, uh, but what you've heard now is the full arc basically of how she went at this political issue that she had to touch. And she, ta so. she takes it on in a, in a very, um, in, in a, in a way that you tend not to see very much in comedy because mm -hmm. comics want to always keep it funny. Like, like the theme, there has to be an upbeat, instead of a downbeat. You remember in the last podcast, we talked about the difference between a lamentation and a dirge right yeah. ending on an upbeat yeah. versus a downbeat um mm -hmm. she did not feel that she that having said all that she needed to say it was not her responsibility to assuage anyone in the audience and rather to say right. look if you're faced with this choice somebody you you need to realize that your your sacrifice for the greater good is mm -hmm. personal but it is in fact for the greater good 
the you know the good of the many outweighs the good of the yeah. few. Good of the few. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, that was a very excellent way to end it because I think you see that even now, right? I mean, that's that's almost like ending it with a moral conclusion. That's the storyteller's yeah. approach to comedy. You see Mike Birbiglia do that quite a bit, actually. He he tends to have that uh, comedic moral, um, but it doesn't necessarily leave you feeling all that great. You know, you're not going no. to a show to like feel like, oh, everything is just safe and wonderful because it's just not. I mean, back in the back in the late eighties or so, like maybe mid to late eighties, there was a TV show that I feel like was on Friday nights or Saturday nights or something, and it was like a half hour or an hour of different stand-up comedians, and they'd get up and do six or seven minutes each, and then get down. That's like where I first saw Paulie Shore. Um, bunch of comedians I remember from that time first going up on stage then and like really falling in love with comedy and then also building up your repertoire and sh and sharing jokes with friends and things like that and um, and I remember back then a lot of comedians would actually end their set with a moral lesson like people always talk about like comedians can't walk off stage until they have the big laugh and that might be kind of true now but back then it was like the set would end with like you know and that's why i think anyone should be able to marry whoever they want to marry and they you get a clap and then they just walk off stage and it was like how they ended the how they ended the set for some reason it was like a 4h um, speech or something right it used to be like that more you know where they were like you know clearly saying something political but in a funny way but then ending it with this like political note and then walk off the stage with that note as opposed to trying to find the big laugh to end it with and then <clears throat> and then the movie punchline came out when he started talking about the big laugh and next thing everyone was like once again obsessed with the big laugh you know uh, but that wasn't always the case but what she's doing here is quite brilliant because she's showing you like these aren't just jokes like this is like really really how i'm reacting to this and i don't have to end this piece on a big laugh because this is just the beginning i'm just telling you i'm going to tackle the fucking guy <laughs> i mean there's something really like kind of wonderful about that where you're watching her sort of paint what her reaction was and um and to do it in a format that she's not comfortable in doing it in because she doesn't do political humor I mean, it's, I think it's brilliant, you know? What is your take? This, this has bothered me because I do mm. think this particular idea that I'm about to address has bothered yeah. me um, for years because I do think most comedians hold not only a special place because of the intellectual rigor of trying to make people laugh consistently mm -hmm. and repeatedly but also mm -hmm. in having control of material and understanding moral and factual basis it becomes something akin to like the highest profession where comedians say why are they getting so upset at me i'm just a comedian don't they know right. it's just a joke i i don't right. fully buy that dismissal i think when people are laying out these these ethical and moral arguments to their audiences, even if they are evoking laughs, those, those laughs are created by the discomfort of knowing something is perhaps not as we've always been told, but are, is nonetheless true and leads toward a sound ethical or moral conclusion. My point being that I'm asking you the question, but I'm telling you before you get to it, that I think it's <laughs> irresponsible to discount 
yourself as a comedian and to say that comedy doesn't have the force of thought and impact that a dry, boring legal argument would or some political speech, because I think in many cases it has more force. No, you're a hundred percent right. And I'm exactly with you on this. I think if I was to like, think about why a comedian would push back against, you know, um, people who are doing what we're doing right now, which is really digging into a joke and trying to understand it and almost like review it from a literary mindset, um, why they push back against that because up against the cacophony of noise and, and the gotcha culture that I think they're used to kind of dealing with, they're just a little sick of it, you know? So it's like, um, you know, well, you said this in a joke. And so, you know, how can you say this in your opinion when, when you've clearly said this in your joke? And it's like, no, that's not what we're fucking talking about. It's <laughs> not what we're talking about here. You're trying to do it like a gotcha moment with like what my humor is, but you don't understand like, you know, my humor is my humor. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm trying to do something different there and, and I, I might not always believe in what I'm saying. Um, I might actually just be, you know, exploring the idea of something and it's not at all a representation of what my actual beliefs are. Um, but that doesn't mean you still can't fucking talk about it even along those lines, you know, like, no, these aren't my actual beliefs, but, um, I'm representing a certain type of voice and trying to do it in a kind of way. And some of it's me a little bit like think about how Stephen Colbert used to talk about his old character from the Colbert show. Right. That wasn't him, but some of it was, you know, and, uh, um, it's, I think it's hard for a lot of people to really understand that, um, and to understand kind of how you, you know, well, and, and it comes down to, uh, it comes down to, I, I think perhaps an ignorance, whether it's willful or, um, indoctrinated where mm-hmm. people are unwilling to step outside of the easy answers of the black and the white and to say, well, Okay, he says this, so he must believe it. No, you have to look at it in the context of artistic license, the creation of the work. Look at what we just listened to. That was a really long joke. I mean, and what it was, mm-hmm. I mean, this this podcast is called Jokes. That's really a full set. A routine. It's a routine. That's a routine. Yes. And so yep. you're, you're talking about a, a person who's developing thoughts in the same way. And people get upset when perhaps they read um, things that are, I don't know, there, there's a sort of uh, modern form of, I don't know, what, what would you call it? Confessional fiction that, yeah. you know, I, I think, uh, what's his name? Um, me talk pretty one day, the, the writer, yeah. um, Doug something. No, 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 no. <laughs> we can make sure you edit this out. I, why am I? Or not, or not. Maybe there'll be some funny moments in here that are worth keeping. <laughs> <laughs> right. David Sedaris. David Sedaris. David That's Sedaris. You read him. Mm-hmm. It's hilarious in points. It sounds mm-hmm. like it's confessional and fact, but he's taking liberties with his own life. He's taking liberties for comic effect, for artistic effect, for moral and ethical effect, for the for the uh, portrayal of a tale that leads to a, the- a thematic uh, conclusion. Uh-huh. Uh, why do stand-up comics have to be taken at face value? Now, this is a perfect They time. don't. They don't, and they yeah. shouldn't be. Yeah. And yeah. anyone who's spent time in a comedy club and thinks that um, the things they see there are um, 100% real or 100% fake doesn't get it. 
doesn't understand the context of what's going uh-huh. on in mm-hmm. a comic setting. Mm-hmm. Well, and they're all different. I mean, it's like any other art, right? I mean, you look at music, you've got Beethoven and then you've got Lead Belly. And they're both musicians, you know, complete musicians. But on one side, you have someone who's like a mathematician, but throws passion into the mathematics of what he creates. And the other side, you've got one of the greatest blues musicians of all time that um, is doing a lot in the form of just emotional writing, not a lot of form, not a lot of function, just the emotion of just what it means to be in the blues, right? And that's just one art right there. It's going to be the same thing with comedy where based off of the particular type of genius of the comedian, they're going to approach it in a different way. You know, you can imagine what Carlin would be doing. Like what would George Carlin be doing with a Trump presidency? Good Lord. This would just be considering how we saw his evolution toward, he died in 09. Um, Mm -hmm. As we saw him shift, he became much more brutal, less forgiving and mm-hmm. uh, you know would have taken it to probably some unforeseeable next level he probably yeah. would have cleared out half his audience yeah. at any vegas show yeah yeah john stewart's head would have exploded if he was still you know the head of the daily show yeah. with trump as president i mean his head would have full-on popped off the top of his head um you know think about like some of those guys that like you know what they would do to respond but then look at jackie and what she does you know she's not a world famous comedian yet She's brilliant, like the rest of them. Um, um, you know, she's one of my favorites for sure, but she's not someone that you're going to recognize on the street or like know her name. Um, and she's not going to try to come at this like an intellectual at all, you know. Um, she, and she's, and she's going to come at it kind of from her own way, like, um, you know, h- how they're going to, how, how uh, sort of things are changing and how she's going to sort of react to it. Um, but it's pretty brilliant and wonderful and, and connects you to her because you see that like she goes to this really meandering path that we can, a lot of us can relate to, but the conclusion she arrives at is that she's going to tackle the guy because it's just her duty to do it. Um, and, but still even fantasizing about doing that from the mindset of a comedian of, you know, I, I just would like a statue, make it small, you know, just not you know, like make it tasteful, preferably slimming. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's brilliant and great. Um, just that whole mindset and approach to it. Um, I just love it. I love it. And I, I have not heard anything better political, politically speaking, since uh, Trump was elected. I also haven't gone seeking it. You know, like I've really used comedy to not think about politics, but I haven't heard anything better. Um, but you do hear, speaking of comedy and politics, you know, there's some wonderful examples of leaders who use their senses of humor to, to make their positions more sort of understandable, relatable, you know, easily to, easy to connect with. I mean, my favorite example of that is uh, Scalia, you know, Antonin Scalia, um, who in his life, I don't think he ever came to any decision as a Supreme Court justice that I could ever possibly agree with. I mean, he stands for everything that I don't stand for, but he also was uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's best friend. And their friendship was so intense that somebody wrote an opera about it. (laughs) And they famously were really close and he had a great sense of humor. And he wrote his opinions with that sense of humor kind of mindset. That's if you you hear him talk, you just want to be friends with the guy because he's so effing charming because he's kind of funny you know, and the way he approaches that stuff. So on one side, you have non-comedians who can use their sense of humor 
to make their stances, which are so extreme often that it's hard to even begin to relate to and, rela and make it relatable because they're relatable people. And then on this other side, on our side, you know, a comedian can use their sense of humor to navigate really uncharted, frightening waters with some, you know, what is it, levity that, uh, that kind of uh, in, almost empowers us to come to the right sort of conclusion, you know? So I don't know. There's something I really love about her. Well, then you, then you, as you should, as you should, I think that's, that's a, that's a good um, explanation. She had a very serious point to make and she made it very well with a very serious ending with comic underpinnings. And I think it, it, what it did was it built um, a lot of audience trust. Now there's probably, I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a willing audience, right? Cause they're there to see a comedy show and they're there to see her possibly of like mind. Uh, but those who possibly aren't, and maybe there, there's a persuasiveness to it. When you talk about Scalia's um, writing and his opinions and his sort of personability, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that, you know, people who met him found him likable and personable. The question is, you know, do we, do we in, embrace a hypocrisy here or is there a hypocrisy if I say um, a Supreme Court opinion isn't the place for humor? A Supreme Court opinion yeah. Um, yeah. isn't where you would make light of a ruling that we've decided um, is going to affect the lives of uh, 330 million people, uh, if not the rest okay. of the world. Is it appropriate to be sarcastic, which he was? I would, yeah, I, it's funny because to hear you present that argument, my initial, I mean, you're a lawyer, so you, I, you know, you're going to know a ton more about this shit than I do. But to hear you present that argument, my, my very first reaction is, fuck no. Yeah, the, uh, uh, a Supreme Court's decision and argument is no place for a sense of humor. But then when I give myself just a few extra seconds to think about it, I, I think the conclusion I draw is, yeah, there's, it's absolutely there's a place for a sense of humor. I mean, I have performed so many funerals, I don't even know where to begin in telling you about the funerals that I've seen. And the moments of humor that either were there for everyone to kind of just be a part of and to experience even in the most tragic kind of losses to some of the, the humorous moments that are there just for me, you know, like um, I did a funeral once. You're going to like this. This is dark. Are you ready? <laughs> this is dark. Good. Dude, not, you're not going to surprise me, but go for it. I did a funeral once on January 1st, New Year's Day. Okay. You're kind of surprising. And, and as a uh, practice, one of the things that we do in the Jewish funeral is you typically start with the casket kind of over the hole, but being held by those strap thingies, you know, and then you kind of lower the casket slowly as part of the ceremony. Mm -hmm. And there is something kind of quite painful and difficult, but also finalizing about like watching that happen in that way. And so that's why we do it like that. But on January 1st, doing that, my thought was 10, nine, Oh my God. Eight, <laughs> seven. And I, I did not think, I did not share that with anybody, but that was the thought in my mind as we lowered the casket was the counting. And then when it reached bottom, I was like, happy new year <laughs> in my head. Right. And you know, 
that joke was a reflection of just being upset that I'm doing a funeral on fucking New Year's Day right. um, and feeling sorry for this family and like, you know, what a horrible way to start out the new year and all that stuff. And that's where my mind went in that dark moment. So what am I going to look at myself and say, you sick, sick puppy? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think for, dare you. <laughs> for you, I mean, that's, I think human beings, I know I do. Yeah. I've always used it as medicine. I've used um, humor and comedy and, and those sorts of thoughts because I don't shut them out. I let them fly. Yeah. And yeah. there are ways to cope and deal with it's a weapon, right? Yeah, it's a weapon. Difficult things, and so um, that that certain now on the, on the flip side, this gets me to what I was touching on earlier when we mentioned mm-hmm. Dennis Miller, and let's let's talk about like even Scalia. I mean, do you really are the things that <coughs> are politically? Um, disjunctive from say Jackie Cation's argument if they come from the other side and are portrayed as comedy are they inherently not funny do you discount them when people hear her routine like this and they're politically of a persuasion that is like, I think Donald Trump's presidency is the best thing that's ever happened in this country. Make America great again, drain the swamp, et cetera, et cetera. Do they look at that and say like, that's not funny. Yeah. I mean, look, I I think if someone is a white supremacist, they probably don't think that Jackie Cation is all that funny. Um, But I think, well, I don't know. I've never tried to make a white supremacist laugh. Maybe they're into slapstick. You know, I can see white <laughs> supremacists being particularly into slapstick. But the three stooges, the three stooges, were stooges. Yeah, they were Jews. So maybe like the like uh, the blues bar, like the Blues Brothers movie, Chevy Chase. You know, where you've got like that Chevy Chase falling down the steps, or like you know the thirty-seven car pile up in the Blues Brothers movie, like something like that. It's just so funny. You know, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really sure what a white supremacist thinks that thinks is funny. Um, but, uh, but you know, yeah, I mean, I, I really do think that if someone has voted for Trump, it's easy for me to imagine them hearing Jackie Cation and laughing at her um, or even laughing with her because of how she's representing this, you know, of I'm just afraid, you know, I'm afraid and I didn't want to be afraid, but now I'm afraid and I haven't been afraid before. But I'm afraid now. And what's this going to mean? You know, and then I think also there's something about just the way that she talks, the way that she presents the ideas that are really funny. You can hear someone share thoughts that, you know, you really don't agree with, but they're presenting it in a way that's so interesting, just with the rhythms of their voice or the way they're bringing an idea out that that's kind of funny to hear. And to be honest, for me, there's something like I find her humor rhythm to be really intoxicating to the point where when I'm trying to be funny, I sometimes will emulate her in the way she does it. You know, where I'll say something, you can kind of hear it in the way I tell stories sometimes. Like, no, no, not a good idea. Right. Not a good idea at all. You know, and that's like, if you can trigger someone's kind of giggle button, you can really keep it going with that type of rhythm in terms of how you're talking. It's very intoxicating. So I do think, I don't think you have to agree with her to think that she's funny. And I think you can maybe relate to what she's saying and still think that she's, you know, still think that she's got a really funny. Mm-hmm. approach 
I just think that if you're an extremist on either side, you don't really find a lot funny anyway. <laughs> I think that's probably true. You know, it's yeah. kind of that, like, this is no laughing matter idea, yeah. as opposed to looking yeah. at it as, well, this person is actually making a forceful argument in favor of the position that you are, yeah. that you are for. Yeah. Now, that, that brings us then to Dennis Miller, right? Like, which we mentioned yeah. earlier. Um, yeah. I... I have thought that he has been funny in his life, but Me too. his, uh, but I don't, honestly, I don't really, I haven't listened to a lot of his political humor and I don't know what to think of it because essentially he is severed from a whole segment of popular comedy and isn't, doesn't get much air time as far as I can tell, except mm -hmm. perhaps on the Murdoch stations. Um, and I don't know what he says or how he says it. And <laughs> I don't mm -hmm. know if that stuff is funny. Frankly, I feel like this is an assignment for myself to, you know, bring in a joke and to break it up and say like, look, is this funny? Is, does this work? And does this yeah. work um, independent of, um, ideological propensities or proclivities i don't i don't i think know. i think when we think of and this is just i think this is us being um our kind of own biased liberal selves right because when i think of right-wing comedy what do i think of i think of dennis miller larry so the cable guy larry the cable guy which is bullshit because he's a jewish guy from fucking new york and that's just a character that he plays but you think about jeff foxworthy you know, Jeff Foxworthy and, um, and that whole, like, you know, you know, you're a redneck when, um, kind of humor and, and people like that. Um, and they're sort of, they're sort of peripheral to the comic world that I'm a part of that I like listen to a lot, you know, guys like Carrot Top too. It's another example of a comedian who's quite famous for comedy, but it's actually kind of peripheral. Like the other comedians don't really fuck with them. Uh, for whatever reason. He's tremendously um, successful. He has a, a standing Vegas show. Yeah. For years. Yeah. Years. Like, and really, really like, like full house every night. Yeah. Um, but he's a prop comic and comics don't really have a lot of respect for prop comics. And he's really muscular and comics don't typically have respect for comics that are muscular. <laughs> but he's totally <laughs> weird looking and that's, there's I something know, to that. I know. I know, but it's something really weird about that. But something about those comedians kind of push them to the outside. Um, and, I, you know, I think that's probably unfair of us to say that it's not possible. I mean, you look at like Lewis Black, Lewis Black in his humor, though, he's known for being liberal. You know, I think he's equally as um, sort of uh, critical of the liberal side as he is the, the conservative side. I mean, years ago, his, his joke was, uh, you know, Democrats are the party of no ideas and Republicans are the party of bad ideas. Um, that's a great line, you know, and it's, and that's really cr critical. And there is a time, I think even now where that's a pretty solid uh, critique of kind of how the government works, you know, and, and um, a, a Demo you know, a Republican will come up and say, here's an idea. And the Democrats will say, we're going to make it shittier, you know? <laughs> and so it's like this overall kind of, uh, you know, cooperation to sort of fuck everyone's lives over is kind of how he sees it. So there also are those positions that are kind of more neutral, but it's hard to imagine a joke about, like, I can't really imagine hearing a joke today about why gay people shouldn't be allowed to marry that would make me laugh. 
You know what I mean? Like yeah. Bill Burr has little interesting pieces in there where he's like, okay, well, what's domestic violence now? You know, so that's interesting. Um, in a in a gay marriage between two men, what's domestic violence? Because if it's two dudes getting in a fight, then it's just two dudes getting into a fight. But now they're married, so how do we even define that? You know, which is kind of like an interesting, but you also know where he's coming from. And no one, you know, he's a nut, but you don't really think of him as a conservative so much. Does that make sense? Um, well, I think because he, he tends to, like you mentioned with Lewis Black, uh, he tends to... Um, he tends to attack both sides in their absurdity. I, I don't mm-hmm. think that he's not, he, he's not flying. Uh, he's not wearing a MAGA hat or flying a Trump flag. Yeah. He's also yeah. not taking at face value. What uh, everyone repeats as uh, platitudinous doctrine. You know, I remember yeah. the things that he, he likes to take on is like, um, you know, being a mother is the hardest job and it you know by attacking that he tends to face uh backlash as being sexist yeah from just even raising that premise is is backlash but i mean it's a it's a lot along the lines of what we talked about with norm mcdonald last week which was um you know the worst part about bill cosby was the hypocrisy Really? Yep. Really? Really? Is that it? Is that it? Because I think it was the pretty raping. Sure it was raping. Yeah. yeah, pretty sure it was the raping. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you know, and yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say keep, keeping it with female voices too. I think it's really interesting because you know Jackie Cation, I think is an example of a female comedian who could be funny to someone who voted for Trump. I think a Trump voter could a you know a good smart Trump voter, which do exist. I think they could look at that and say, yeah, that's funny. I get that. You know, um, I don't think that there are a lot of Trump voters who would think that like Sarah Silverman is funny, if that makes sense. Like, I think there are probably other voices in comedy that just can't possibly cross over in that way. Sarah Silverman's probably a good example of that. And Sarah Silverman, in terms of female voices, is kind of like, you know, um, uh, Janine Garofalo of today, you know, in terms of there is a voice um that really represented um a certain perspective but like look at roseanne barr like where where the fuck do you put roseanne barr is she a conservative is she liberal you know like how do we even categorize her with some of the things that she said and some of the you know waves that she's made throughout the year so i think it's impossible with her because like there's there's no discernible consistency in what she has done i mean it, it just seems to be scattershot and all over the place and sometimes just for the sake of feeling bad one day you know as Mm -hmm. if "Ah, i'll just say this yep yeah exactly so yeah it's it's hard to categorize them go no and in terms of female voices i mean you look at um who are the who are the strong comedians right now i mean Sarah Silverman, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. Whitney Cummings, um, mm-hmm. Liberal. Uh, uh, Nikki Glaser, uh, Liza Schlesinger. Um, yep. I mean, there's a Taylor Tomlinson. A lot of Jewish ladies. <laughs> a lot of Jewish ladies. <laughs> well, I'll, th- I'll throw in a fundamentalist Christian in there. There's a Taylor Tomlinson. Um, yep. from Taylor Tom- Tomlinson from Temecula. Um, <laughs> but she's, you know, she's, she started off in the Christian circuit. She's now tackling, you know, really 
she's not she's no longer is in that circuit and has kind of like been yeah. disowned by it because of her talks but of like, yeah uh, what i see is i i don't see with with sarah silverman you can't escape the politics she was on stage no. at the democratic national convention four years ago um you know essentially <coughs> you know saying what she says and yeah but with others i mean i think there's discernible very great intellectual uh rigor that um i don't know it'd be nice to have a, a sound debate among all these guys because i had talked to you about the idea of the bro comic which has a mm -hmm. certain leverage and certain pull uh -huh. you know the, there are those up at the comedy store that are very much the, the self-glossed alpha dogs and yep. there's an underlying tone of misogyny there's an underlying tone of um kind of outmoded masculine mm -hmm. superiority mm -hmm. and uh you know does that is that still funny i mean only if you're taking the piss out of yourself to some extent yeah it still works but i tell you you know none of those guys fuck with lisa lampanelli that's true none of those guys they know better than to fuck with lisa lampanelli that's you a, know that's a good point that's a good point yeah. and she yeah i mean and she's as as uh, harsh a voice oh. as any oh. as any roaster there is my lord yeah yeah you when you're going to a lisa lampanelli show you want to be in the darkest corner of that room that you can possibly <laughs> find and only go if you're feeling good about yourself because oh, if she sees you and decides to, you know, get into you a little bit, there really isn't anyone around that can rip. And I'm talking, I mean, I think even Jeff Ross would say, you don't fuck with Lisa Lampanelli. Sure. You know, um, yeah. Jesselneck, when they've been on stage, he, when it was like his turn to like make fun of Lisa Lampanelli, he was like, you're cool. He <laughs> 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 was like... <laughs> Not touching you, dude. <laughs> Didn't want to open that <laughs> That's door. What he did. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Lisa Lampanelli, you're fine. Move down to the next person. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what he did. Everyone cracked up because everyone knew. Yeah. Don't fuck with Lisa Lampanelli. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think this was a, a great joke. Why don't I ask you the question you always um, ask? You know, where does this, where does this fall? in your your vault of jokes and where does uh jackie cation fall in your uh in terms of the perfect comedian she's close she's close for me um this joke is pretty close to perfect for me um in terms of uh, a type of joke that i like you know if we're going to go political i like it to be personal in this way and i want i want to be taken on a journey there and so yeah this joke is pretty pretty close i have other kind of comedy buttons that you get pushed in other ways you know what I mean? Like, who doesn't love a good impression? Um, impressions are great. Who doesn't love, like, silly play on words um, when someone can really kind of dig into a thing? But um, the way that she, you know, she's like a, just the idea of her being kind of like, her whole presence is she's arrived late to dinner and that's how she kind of presents herself. But another way to think about it, she's sort of like a chihuahua where she gets you laughing and then she's just nipping at your heels you know, the whole time just making you laugh more, you know, no, 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 that's not a good idea. Right. But the way she talks about her dad, you know, my dad, you know, 
making friends, making friends. Every time he opens his <laughs> right. face, you know, it's just like that, just a breath between say, opens she's, his, she's not hot, you know? but she's overqualified, which is like, she's not hot, but she's overqualified, yeah. you know, and just the rhythm of that, her grandmother talking about, uh, you know, and she said that story when I told her I didn't want to go to church. And so I, you know, she told me that story and that she was like, I go to church. You'll go to church, you know, <laughs> like, you know, none of, no words between just like the, the way that, uh, she has this joke later on where it's like her dad's, uh, her dad's conversation. Oh, there's one line where she's like, my dad was a lot like radiation. You didn't see him a lot, but he had an effect on our lives. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other line where she's like, uh, you know, when it, her dad came in, it was time to have the conversation about the, about the birds and the bees. And he was like, um, he was like, there's flowers and then there's bees. The bees go from flower to flower. The flowers do not go from bee to bee. Guess which one you are. And then that was, that was it. That was the whole, <laughs> that was the whole thing. Oh my God. But the, way she, the way she does it is she's like, that was it. That's the whole story. That's, that's all he gave me. That was the, you know, that was it. That was the whole thing. And she just kind of keeps like drilling in like that. And so if you think that's funny, her reaction to it just sort of really keeps you going. So she, she really knows how to milk a laugh. She knows how to kind of make me anxious and also excited to hear what she wants to say next. And um, she knows how to present herself in a way that's really unthreatening and therefore makes her, you know, really easy to listen to. And she's one of those comedians where you can kind of like take her approach to just the way she thinks about things. And for me, it, it makes a lot of sense and I can really kind of like you know, apply it to my life. So for example, she has this um, funny thing where she talks about making friends. And she was like, I wasn't good at making friends as a kid. I was, I was reading a lot, you know, talks about like being in gym class and running laps and reading a book while she's running laps. And the coach came up to her and goes, Hey, do you have any friends? And she's like, no, no. Do you see this book I'm reading right now? No, I don't have any friends at all. It's called American teens of the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Not a, not a good scenario. And so she says that the gym teacher then goes, oh, okay. And then drew a graph for her, um, like a line graph, basically. And on one side is, you know, how much in the business of your friends you are. And the other side is like, um, you know, sort of how much time you're spending together. And the idea is, is that, you know, it's sort of like in the middle, right? It's, you don't want to be on one end, you're not talking to anybody. On the other end, you're going through people's trash and you're like checking their text messages. So like friendship is sort of right in the middle. And so she draws this graph to kind of explain to her what it is. And then she talks about how she's always approached that with life. You know, I think about like for me, um, meeting new people and doing online dating, right? And so you like meet these people online and like um, you hear about what they're interested in. So like if I see a picture of a, of a woman skydiving out of a plane, I'm like swipe left. <laughs> I'm like, I'm out. I'm out. Because to me, there's a direct inverted relationship between the chance that I might pee on myself on a date and how fun a date is. A lot of people, those two are the same. The, the higher chance you have to pee on yourself out of fear, the more fun the date is. For me, those yeah, are... I was, I was, I was trying inverted. to think, like, what's the triggering uh, moment for the pee? I mean, jumping out of the plane. I mean, there it is right there. You know, the, the ground rushing towards you. Right. Um, I mean, there are other you reasons you could be peeing death. that wouldn't be disqualifying. I, I guess so, if you'd like to uh, go down that road. But I mean, in terms of just yeah. out of fear. Sure. sure. <laughs> out of fear. You know, I was like, yeah, I would, I would do scuba diving as like a date. 
Um, because <coughs> as long as I'm in a wet suit, not a dry suit, there is the, the possibility of peeing on yourself as like a great white approaches, but you're also wet anyway. So, so it kind of like gets dampened a bit by your ability to hide it. You know what I mean? Whereas if you're wearing a dry suit and you don't realize that like, well, fuck, I'm just going to be dry except for the urine on my pants now. That's not a path I want to go down. Um, so you see that, you know, it's like, I want adventure. Let's go outdoor rock climbing. I want to climb El Cap. <laughs> it's like, no. Yeah. No. Yeah. We're good. You have, you have, <laughs> have that l limitation. Yeah. So, but I, you know, I put it on a graph and it helps me to make sense of it. You know what I mean? Sure. So I have to explain it to somebody. I'm like, imagine a bar graph and it's just a direct, it's like a seesaw, you know? <laughs> so I like, I really relate to that approach to her. So yeah, she's pretty damn close to one of my favorite comedians for sure. What you got over there? What you doing? Spider. Spider on my desk. Did you get him? No, I just got him. Just threw him over there. It's not going to hurt anything. No, that's a good move. Didn't look like a that's black a widow or brown widow or anything. Um, yeah, they'll fuck with you. Yeah, they will. Um, well, I think we have a good amount of material for a show here, man. I think Two it's hours good. in, just about. Yeah, we're going yeah. to we're gonna have to do some cutting. Cut, cut, yeah. cut, 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 cut. Let's do some cutting. Um, yeah, good. That was good, man. Like, out of the blue, I had no idea what was coming up. So <coughs> that works. You want me, to take us, want me to take us out right quick? Sure. Let's take us out. I, I'm going to. I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my day now. Um, I got a lot of the rest <laughs> of the day too. I got a good seven, eight hours. Um, oh yeah. I don't know. Maybe go for maybe jump out of a plane. Maybe just sit here and pee on myself. It's always an option. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's always an option. And Robbie can complain again. You know, by phone saying, "Why do you continue to talk about bodily function?" Because he's a fucking suit, man. He doesn't understand humor. <laughs> What the hell is going on here? Bodily function suit, funny, itchy butts. I'm gonna, funny. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what I can to just like try to see if I can split you guys up. I'm gonna do a podcast with him and talk shit about you. Then I'm gonna do a podcast with you and talk shit about him. And oh, he'll see, hear, uh, he'll hear this. Better. He'll hear this. I'll tell. I'll tell I know. Him. I'll I know. call him right I after know. this. I'll be like, hey, dude, this is what I said about you. He's like, oh yeah, this <laughs> totally true. It's all totally true. That's perfect. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, here we go. Let's I'm, do, I'm gonna take, take us out. out. All right, thanks everybody for joining us. Another episode of Jokes. This was episode five, five, five finger, uh, the five finger uh, grab or whatever the hell you discount. call it. Discount. Five finger discount, five finger discount. Um, thank you so much for joining. Please like, share with your friends, share with your colleagues, share with your uh, uh, fellow citizens. Um, get involved, make a difference. Get out there, urinate on yourself for a purpose, man. For a purpose. Put on some good cowboy hats and uh, show the world what's what. Uh, in any case, uh, we'll see you next time when uh, Eric will bring the joke. And uh, we'll see where the conversation takes us then. Uh, thank you so much. Next time on Jokes, we'll see you. Yeah, next time. All right. See ya. See ya.